0: Hello. Mom. Luke. If you had to sum up all of the trouble that I got into as a kid, if you had to give it a common theme, mm-hmm. what would you say it was? Pyromania. That's exactly right. And I think that started for me 30 years ago this week, or actually last week when Backdraft came out. You're kidding. I figured it's because you watched Dad and Josh burn everything they could in the fireplace. No, I think it was Backdraft. I think I was so fascinated with that movie that I got in trouble for the rest of my adolescence. Oh, my goodness. Do you remember that movie? Uh, You know, I never did see it. I've seen clips of it all my life, but I don't remember ever actually watching it. That's wild because I was 11 years old and I watched it and it was rated R. Uh, It was rated R? Yes. How did you watch it? I didn't take you to see an R-rated movie. I think you did, Mom. I don't think you're the person that you thought you were. No, I don't think I did. I would not take you to see an R-rated movie. But, well, somebody did because I remember it. Yeah. Interesting. Well, cool. I thought I'd share that with you. We're going to talk about it on the episode today. Oh, but you just make it clear that I did not take you to see an R-rated movie. <sighs> I love you, Mom. Thank you for taking me to I see to- R-rated movies when I was a kid. I'll talk to you soon. Whatever. Goodbye. Bye. From Mill Media Group, this is 35. A weekly peek back at the music movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 20, Young Boomers, Big Flames, and Sloppy Seconds. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, June 1st, 1991. Hello friends, and welcome back to 30 Pop. Or if you're new here, welcome for the first time. Here's what you can expect. Each week on this show, we turn the clock back exactly 30 years so we can explore what was happening in pop culture then. We keep it mostly light, although a serious thought may show up from time to time. Mostly, we'll just look back at all the things that make us nostalgic from this week 30 years ago. Explore a little trivia around those things where we can and get all the warm and fuzzy or sometimes cringy feelings in our reminiscing. I have a handful of folks I love to bring on as guest hosts from time to time, and will even occasionally get to talk to someone kind of famous, or previously famous, whatever. It's very fun, and all are welcome, including you. So, thank you for listening. Now let's dive into this week in 1991. We saw a few, but not many, changes at the top of the Billboard charts compared to last week. The top overall song in the country was for the second straight week, I Don't Want to Cry by Mariah Carey, who had been dominating the charts for months with her self-titled debut album. And the top song on the hot rap chart was another repeat, Yo-Yo's You Can't Play With My Yo-Yo, a title that I have to assume felt really clever 30 years ago, but which sounds so ridiculous today. This was the second single from her debut album, Make Way for the Motherload, which was co-produced by and features rap icon Ice Cube. Another pretty silly name if you think about it, although I would be the last person to ever say so to Mr. Cube. We did technically have a new number one album in the country as compared to last week, although not as compared to two weeks ago. Returning to the number one spot was R.E.M.'s breakout album, Out of Time. The number one song on the Hot Country chart this week in 1991 was the debut single from the newly christened Nashville sextet Diamond Rio, Meet in the Middle. I start your way, you start walking I say newly christened because this wasn't a new band, exactly. It was just a new name for a semi-new, permanent lineup. The band had existed in some form since 1982 when they were assembled under the moniker Grizzly River Boys as a theme park attraction at Nashville's now-defunct Opryland USA. The original lineup included exactly none of the folks who made up Diamond Rio in 1991. But it did include Ty Herndon, who would go on to a successful, albeit controversy-filled, solo career in the mid-90s. And to become one of a very short but growing list of openly gay country singers when he came out in 2014. Which reminds me, happy Pride Month. Grizzly River Boys evolved into Tennessee River Boys. And then in 1989 to Diamond Rio and the six-piece lineup from this debut. The same six-piece lineup that's still making music under that moniker today. The main difference between Diamond Rio in 1991 and Diamond Rio in 2021 is that today they have six fewer mullets in the band. Seriously, you should see the music video for Meat in the Middle, which I will henceforth refer to exclusively as either Meat in the Mullet or Mullet in the Middle. Regardless, these guys could sing and play. This song will always remind me of my grandparents. And... As odd as this will sound, the new top song on the hot R&B and hip-hop chart this week in 1991 will always remind me of my older brother, Josh. Let me be very clear here, though. It's only because he was such a huge fan of this group and this song. The debut single from Color Me Bad, I Wanna Sex You Up. This song was huge. Color Me Bad had formed in Oklahoma City in the mid-80s when its four members met in high school choir. After an unbelievable series of events, they were sort of catapulted into recording this song for the soundtrack to New Jack City, after it was turned down by the likes of Belle Biv DeVoe, Keith Sweat, and Christopher Williams. It wound up being the biggest single on that soundtrack and led to the rushed recording of the group's debut album, CMB for which they'd only written four or five songs at the time. Rushed or not, the album exploded, selling over six million copies and establishing Color Me Bad as one of the preeminent vocal groups of the early 90s. We also saw some pretty notable album releases 30 years ago this week, all on May 28, 1991. First up, the Stevie Wonder soundtrack to the forthcoming quasi-controversial fifth feature film by writer-director Spike Lee, Jungle Fever. This album received mixed reviews from critics, despite being the fifth straight album from Wonder to make it to number one on the R&B albums chart. One fun fact from this album, on various tracks it features background vocals from a couple other acts we've talked about on the show recently. Keith Washington, whose single Kissing You was the top of the R&B and hip-hop chart two weeks and 30 years ago, and Boys to Men, whose debut album had just dropped about a month earlier and was steadily making its way to the top. We'll get back to Jungle Fever, the movie, not the soundtrack, soon. Next on the list of new releases was Gish, the debut album from decade-defining Chicago-based rock band Smashing Pumpkins. This album was sort of a quiet success for the band, at least relative to the rest of their catalog. The album was certified platinum and fared just as well critically as it did commercially. Critics loved it, and they still do. In 2019, Rolling Stone magazine ranked Gish at number 32 on their list of the greatest grunge albums of all time. While that may sound like a moderate to low ranking on such a specific list, in the context of Smashing Pumpkins' impressive catalog, especially their 1993 mainstream breakout, Siamese Dream, or their 1995 follow-up double album, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, 32nd Place is really impressive for the far less familiar debut. The third album that released on May 28th, which quickly found major chart success, debuting at number two just a couple weeks after its release and reaching number one the following week, was the second and final album from Compton-based gangsta rap pioneers, NWA. Or at least the remaining two-thirds of NWA, Ice Cube and the Arabian Prince, having already left the group in 1989 and 88, respectively. The album was called... well, I won't say what it was called, but it was also known as Efilforzagon, the actual title in reverse. Despite its major critical success, it marked the end of NWA as Eazy-E moved on to continue his successful, albeit short-lived, solo career while Dr. Dre and the DOC left to form Death Row Records alongside notorious Intimidation artist Suge Knight and record producer Dick Griffey. There will be a lot to say about Death Row Records as well as their rival, Bad Boy Records, over the next couple years. In television news this week in 1991, we saw the end of a series I distinctly remember my mom loving. A concept that I find pretty interesting in retrospect. After only four seasons on the air, the primetime drama 30-something, about a group of boomer friends in Philadelphia navigating their 30s in the 1980s after being active participants in the counterculture movement of the 1970s. I never watched it, but I do remember the general tone of the show. It interests me today for a few reasons. One, the term boomer has today come to mean, so specifically in my mind, folks in their 60s and 70s who are mostly out of touch with or even a little angry about things the rest of us consider pretty normal, be it technology or cultural trends. It's fun to remember that they were younger at some point in their life. Younger than I am today, even. I understand and fully appreciate how ridiculous that statement is, but it's true. I imagine boomers having always been exactly the age they are now. So it's fun to think of a time when they were having to teach their elders how to work their VCRs and answering machines and rolling their eyes at their parents' politics. It's even more fun to imagine a revival of this show, wherein its original cast is in 2021, spouting conspiracy theories about climate change across their multiple duplicate Facebook accounts and asking their teenage grandchildren to explain TikTok or the word yeet and arguing with their now 30 or 40-something-year-old kids about how all lives matter and if people would just stop protesting, we could make America whatever again. All while wistfully recounting the days when no one was worried about silly political correctness and the entire LGBTQIA community could be far more easily summed up with a simple pejorative slur. A show where we watch them adjust to a world in which a female Democrat of Afro-Jamaican and Indian descent gets elected vice president and in which capitalism is no longer held as a universal imperative. All between commercials selling New Balance sneakers and medicine for folks with type 2 diabetes. Actually, maybe I don't want to see that show. Anyway, the original, although relatively short-lived, was very successful and won lots of primetime Emmys and a couple Golden Globes. Regardless, its ratings began to wane in the later years, so they got the axe this week in 1991 at the end of their fourth season. Because, again, capitalism. A few days later, on June 1st, we saw the birth, sort of, of the television network Comedy Central. This was actually more of a simple name change, though, when CTV, the comedy network, which was a merger between the comedy channel and another channel called simply Ha, to avoid confusion with the Canadian Broadcast Network, also known as CTV, rebranded as Comedy Central. And while they've changed their visual aesthetic a few times in the last three decades, the network name remains the same today. Also on June 1st, we saw the series premiere of one of the corniest and shortest-lived, but perhaps most beloved, kids' shows of the 90s, the campy Nickelodeon comedy Salute Your Shorts. We run we jump! I hope we never part. Now get it right or pay the price. Now we will share a lifetime of the fondest memories by the lake of Ottawa, sat in the old pine trees. Camp on, we hold you in our hearts. But when we think, the thing came apart. Much like Hey Dude, I hated this show as a kid, but watched it regardless. I knew even then that what I was watching was objectively bad television. But I couldn't look away. I think it was mostly a fascination with seeing the actor who played Sam, the adorable redheaded kid on Different Strokes, sporting the mother of all mullets and portraying the camp's troublemaking teenage bully, Budnick. It was just so bad. But... I apparently enjoyed it enough that in the early 2000s, a full decade after it was canceled, my future sister-in-law would give me burned DVDs of the entire pirated series as a Christmas gift. I may be more nostalgic about that than the show itself. I rewatched a handful of episodes this week, which are, as of this recording, streaming on Paramount Plus, and it's exactly as bad and as hard to stop watching as I remembered. You should check it out. In Hollywood this week in 1991, the top earner at the box office for the second week in a row was, as I mentioned in the opening for this episode, the Ron Howard-directed thriller starring Kurt Russell, William Baldwin, and Robert De Niro, Backdraft. I'll spare you the trailer for this movie, not because it's bad, but because it's so uniquely visual. It just doesn't communicate in an audio format. This movie was incredible in its day. A triumph in cinematography and special effects. And it's no wonder made in the time before CG had taken over the film industry. The incredible fire shots in this film were captured by an actual cameraman decked out in a fireproof suit and walking around in actual fires with a handheld camera. The results were stunning, and they remain so today. I rewatched this movie this week, honestly not expecting it to hold up very well, but to my delight, it's still a really good movie. One fun fact about this one... Brad Pitt was vying for the role of Brian McCaffrey in the film, the role that wound up going to William Baldwin, who, despite being a far inferior actor in my opinion, was a much better fit for this role. But in order to make Backdraft, Baldwin had to be released from his contract to play the role of J.D. in the also recently released Thelma and Louise, a role that was then given to, you guessed it, Brad Pitt. The film has, to date, grossed over $150 million worldwide, more than tripling its estimated $40 million budget. And in 2019, Baldwin and Donald Sutherland reprised their roles from the film for its much more poorly received sequel, Backdraft 2, which was written, like the original, by Gregory Wyden. It was not, however, directed by Ron Howard. New in theaters this week in 1991 was the Sally Field, Kevin Kline, Elizabeth Shue, Robert Downey Jr., and Whoopi Goldberg comedy, Soap Dish. Celeste Talbert had it all. Yes, so many people to thank. I hate her so much. Beauty, fame, love. That's a cut. But her life. Next time, could you wear a swimsuit underneath the towel? Just turned into one big soap opera. They're plotting against me every day, all day long. There's the greedy actress. I cannot be the villain forever. I'm, I'm sweet. Intended. I'm a victim. The sex star producer. You do want me, don't you, David? In the weirdest way. And you know what you have to do. I murder some homeless girl. Are you nuts? One weaked out writer. I will just say Maggie went to Tibet to visit the Dalai Lama. A spiritual thing. I thought the Dalai Lama moved to L.A. Well, then some other Lama It Doesn't matter. Fernando Lama. Come on. And the most brilliant actor alive. Rod Randall comes back from Vienna? So, he wasn't killed. He was maimed. The guy was decapitated. They froze the head. How am I supposed to write for a guy that doesn't have a head? All right, well, we haven't figured that out yeah. yet. Well, who plays it? Closer, listen. Maybe I should have sent a memo. Things are hard for me right now, in life and on the show, okay? Things were hard for me 20 years ago when you spat me out and left me for dead! Lost glass drama! <laughs> Help me! You're kidding. You're an egomaniac. Well, of course I'm an egomaniac. I've got America's sweetheart climbing up my drainpipe. It's a story hey. of jealousy. If I hurt you, I'm really sorry. I was very young. Not anymore, babe. Lust. Yummy. With a spoon. And family reunion. I'm carrying his child. One more day, we would have had a Greek tragedy on our head. Where a nervous breakdown. No! I didn't sleep with her! Will somebody please believe me? No! Is all in a day's work. Yeah, this is. I don't is want the You're don't, crazy! Don't, don't, You're nuts! Never... Now, why can't I write stuff like this? Sally Feed. I don't think you realize how serious this operation is! Brain. You will not have a brain when it is complete. I don't want my brain. I don't need it. Take that thing! On. Kevin Klein. You try playing Willie Loman in front of a bunch of old twit eating meatloaf, chewing and slurping and spitting out their pits. Whoopi Goldberg. You know, I would thank you for acting, but you've never been this good. And Robert Downey Jr. I'm gonna seriously review this relationship. In Soap Dish. There's a nurse in the restaurant. Did I miss a meeting? I remember when this came out, but I've honestly never had any interest whatsoever in seeing it. I noticed this past week, though, that it was streaming on Amazon Prime Video, and because I'm so deeply dedicated to providing you all with the most informed, reliable reporting on 30-year-old pop culture on this show, I decided I better watch it. And I'm glad I did. It was significantly better than I'd expected. Not to say it deserved to win any Oscars or anything, but it is a solid comedy. It was also, obviously, an especially star-studded one for the time. Sally Field was deservingly one of the queens of Hollywood in those days, following her amazing performance in Steel Magnolias. Kevin Kline was just a couple films removed from A Fish Called Wanda. Whoopi had just hit big with Ghost, as had Robert Downey Jr. with Air America and Elizabeth Shue with Back to the Futures 2 and 3, Cocktail, and Adventures in Babysitting. Perhaps the best thing about this movie, though, is the hassle it was to create. Because of the number of reshoots this film required, Kevin Klein had to drop out of another film for which he was cast. Hook, making room for Robin Williams to play one of the greatest roles of his career, Peter Banning. Have I mentioned how excited I am to talk about that movie later this year? It's getting close. Lastly for this week in 1991, we had The Birth of One Star and The Untimely Death of Another. Sadly, on June 1st, David Ruffin, the legendary lead vocalist for The Temptations, died of a drug overdose at only 50 years of age. According to Wikipedia, Ruffin's funeral was held at New Bethel Baptist Church in Detroit. Surviving members of The Temptations sang My Girl. Stevie Wonder and Aretha Franklin also sang at the funeral. Michael Jackson volunteered to pay for the funeral expenses but did not attend the service. And Jackson, Rod Stewart, Daryl Hall and John Oates, Diana Ross... The Spinners and Martha Reeves and the Vandellas all sent floral arrangements. On the same day, the world was made a little brighter when future Hollywood star Zazie Beetz was born in Berlin, Germany. Happy 30th, Zazie. I thought you were excellent in Joker. All right, friends, that's everything for this week. Next week, we'll get to look back on one of my very favorite films of the year, so don't miss it. As always, I am so thankful for your listening ears. Now, as you leave, remember, when the doors open... The top, don't get out. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from MillU Media Group, visit milliu.media.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com.